At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? Well, if you have your Bible, do open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's uh, where we're at this morning. We're in this series called Church, Why Bother? And we have been asking the question uh, from the Bible, what, what's the point? Why, why should we be concerned with, with being a part of a local church? What good is that? What, what centrality is there to that? What's... Why bother? I mean, there's just a whole lot of options that we have in front of us in these days, and, and why, why should we give any consideration at all to, to the local church and our involvement and our investment in it? And, and Paul has been talking to Timothy, his young apprentice and disciple in pastoral ministry, and he's, he's been telling Timothy, Timothy, I want you to, I want you to stay in Ephesus and, and help this church be a people, a church that is centered on the gospel because the church is important. The church is the body of Christ. It is, it is the household of God. It is there in the church where the gospel is upheld. It is the, the pillar and the buttress or the foundation of truth. The church matters. And the message that we carry and the message that we share matters deeply in the world today. But, but I would ask the question as we move into chapter two this morning, is there something missing in the church right now? Are we lacking something? I want to maybe just expose it to us in this light. If we were to look at the practice of the early church in the book of Acts and, and compare or contrast their practice to our lives today, our practice as a church, would we see something lacking? Let me, let me just pull out four particular passages in this book of Acts that talk about this. First of all, at the beginning of Acts, when the twelve were, were there waiting in Jerusalem after the ascension of Jesus to the Father, Jesus commanded them and told them to wait, to stay in Jerusalem. And, and Luke records, and he says, all these with one accord, so there was unity there, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There was something that was going on that they were doing in that, in that midst. Just in the next chapter, in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is sent on the day of Pentecost, and he comes and fills all believers, and, and Peter stands up in the midst of the city of Jerusalem as people are wondering, what is going on there? They hear this commotion, and they hear the language of the gospel in their own language, and they're going, what is happening? And Peter preaches this message that Jesus is the Christ, that he is, he is the Messiah, and that they had killed them, and they, they're cut to the heart, the scripture says, and they ask what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. And, and they, they confess, they repent, and they draw near in faith to Jesus, and they believe, and 3,000 are added to their number that day. And then the very next verse in Acts 2.42 says, here was the focal point of the church, the priority. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. One more passage, the first conflict and the church in Acts chapter 6 comes along and the, the Greek-speaking widows in the church were being neglected and the Jewish or the Hebrew-speaking widows were being favored. And this conflict arose and they came to the elders and said to the apostles, help fix this, like deal with this. And, and the apostles spoke to them and said, well, let's appoint some gifted, spirit-filled men to, to carry out this responsibility. 
But, they said, for us, this is Acts 6-4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Just a little bit later, when facing persecution from the government and the imprisonment of their leaders, the Scripture says Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Do you see what's missing? What, were the, what was the early church doing? Again and again and again. They had devoted themselves to prayer. They were giving themselves to prayer. Earnest prayer was being made. The church was a praying church. The church was devoted to prayer. But is that our practice today? Is, is that the way that we deploy our faith? Or, or maybe the church for us is something different. Maybe for us, the church is a place of entertainment. It's a, it's a way to get a spiritual pick-me-up and a, and a boost for a week, a hard week that's ahead of us. So, so we come to church and we hope that the talk or the sermon, whatever you want to call it, is really good and it's inspiring and encouraging. We hope the music hits the right beats and the notes and fires us all up to head out into the world. We hope the pastor's a little bit funny so that we can laugh at him for just a bit and then we can get on with our week. We want our hearts lifted up. Maybe that's how we think the church should be. Or maybe we envision the church to be a place of community service. Like our hearts are to care for people that are despondent and broken and needy and weak and poor and all the rest. And so the church should be an active engagement into the world. We should be caring for others and serving and and carrying forth justice and righteousness. And, And so we want to feel good about ourselves by helping others out. The church should be the vehicle by which that happens. Maybe the experience of the church in our time is an activity and community center. Like, we want the church so that we actually have friends. We want to have people that we can hang around with and social relationships to build off with and and kids for our kids to hang out with and get to know. And we want it in an environment that's safe and holistic and and caring. And that's what the church is for. It's just to be a, a social community where we can be known and carry out and hang out with other people. Fundamentally, I'm asking the question, what does the church do? What should we expect? I certainly think that there's elements of all of those things that that are there in the church and should exist, but but I think we, at times today, I feel the weight of this myself as I was weighing out this passage this week. I feel that many times prayer is missing among us as a people of God. Or to say it this way, when we gather we should pray. The, 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 the clear focus of the early church was prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. They gave themselves to prayer. They prayed earnestly. You can't miss that every time the church in the book of Acts was gathered, they were praying. What about us? Are we a people devoted to God in prayer? Now, that's the issue that Paul is bringing to bear on Timothy and to the Ephesian church here at this part of his letter. He says, I urge then, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you lead this church in prayer. When the church gathers, we pray. And Paul is helping us, the Holy Spirit is helping us this morning because we're asked the next question, well, what should we pray about? If we're, if we're going to commune with God, if we're going to talk with him in our prayers, well, what do we say? What are we praying for? What's, what's the heart of our prayers? And that's what Paul gets at here with Timothy, three things that he tells us to pray about and to pray for. First of all, we're to pray for all people. As the church gathers and we pray, we are to pray for all people. Now, he says right out of the gate of first importance, first of all then. And this is not a list, Paul, you don't get later in this letter, Paul saying secondly and, and thirdly. He just, first of all, that's the only thing, and it's a statement of highest importance. If you're going to do anything at all, do this, pray. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, now he's saying this as, as a deep desire of his heart. He's saying, I'm urging you in this. There is a, there's a demand here or a pleading. Like, if you neglect anything, don't neglect this. This is, this is the thing that you as a church should be about. All of this is, is an emphasis of desire. It's that important. When we gather, we should pray. It's of highest importance. And that we should pray deeply. And he's urging, I love this, he urges supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now there's four terms here. The supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Three of the four of them look a lot alike. Like, like how do you parse out or differentiate between a supplication, which is praying on behalf of somebody else, and an intercession, which is praying on behalf of someone else. And a prayer itself in that. We would, um, maybe it would just be me, be tempted to sit down and get the original language out and go, okay, what is the distinctiveness of each one of these words? I, I don't want us to miss the forest for each individual tree here. The point is, pray. You pray and you eagerly pray for other people. You pray for all people. I, I like John Calvin, the uh, French reformer. He was so humble enough in his work on this passage to say this. He says, I own that I do not thoroughly understand the difference between the first three out of the four terms Paul uses here. So like one of my heroes of the faith says, I don't know. I don't know what the difference is. Yet, he says, this heaping up of terms isn't just excess. Paul appears to join together these three terms for the purpose of recommending more warmly and urging more strongly earnest and constant prayer. He says it over and over and over again in three or four different ways to get us the point into our hearts, like pray, plead with God, intercede for one another, bring supplications, bring petitions, bring your heart to God and pray for others. Oh, and bring thanksgiving as well. This is, this is the act of prayer, intake and outtake. Our prayers, our petitions, we're asking God on behalf of other people, even on behalf of ourselves, we're saying, God, we need, help us, provide for us in this way. And, and then thanksgivings are the intake. We're, as we see God doing that work, as we see him working in the lives of others, answering those prayers, what should flow out of us then is thanksgiving. So we're offering, God to, our, offering to God our prayers, and then when we see him at work, we're receiving in and issuing back out thanksgiving to him for his work. It's a, it's a full circle, a full uh, redemption of, of what he's doing in our lives. Paul is getting at this reality of praying, and we should be praying, here he says, for all people, for others. So make supplications, make prayers, make intercessions for everybody. Make thanksgiving for all people. 
Now, you might say, well, whoa, 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 there's like 8 billion people on the planet right now. Do I need to have a list of all of them in my phone and like work through them one day at a time? Like, I'm going to die before I get through that whole list. Like, how's that going to work? In saying all people here, the Holy Spirit is calling us to be open. He's, he's not necessarily talking about naming everybody that you can and praying for them, although that's not necessarily bad. He's talking about how we like to exclude, how we like to narrow down our focus. And there's people that we will pray for, and there's people that we won't pray for. The scripture here is calling us to be expansive in our prayers, to not neglect or not miss who we would pray for. Instead of being just people that pray for me and mine, the urging of the Holy Spirit is that we should be urgent and deeply, constantly, consistently praying for all types of people, for everybody, for those outside the walls of our church and inside the walls of our church. Let me, let me help us think through this a little bit more about how we pray. Let me just focus in here for the moment and the call to prayer itself. How are we doing here in prayer? A Barna research study in 2017 surveyed over 1,000 American adults, and they found that 2% in this study, and this is not just Christians, it was a pretty broad study, but 2% of this 1,000, well over this 1,000, reflecting the nation, said that they have in the last three months prayed audibly with another person or group. Another 2% said in the last three months they prayed collectively with the church. What they're finding is just... Very few people are praying with other people. It's just not something we do. When asked about what they pray about, the respondents said 20% of them reported they pray for the global needs and for global people. So 80% of people praying only pray for themselves, and, and 4% pray with other people. You see how diminished prayer is? I think that research is troubling and, and perhaps we in the church here, we would score a bit higher, but, but that much higher? I don't know. I don't know. And yet, prayer is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Prayer, prayer is how we commune with God. It's how we walk with Him. It's, it's the act of faith and trust in God. Jehiah Packer wrote, I believe that prayer is the measure of a person, spiritually, in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Are we people of prayer? Does that occupy space in our lives to draw near to God, to bring our needs, to bring our hearts, to bring the needs of others into his view? Not only are we to be praying, but of concern is who we are praying for as well. The way I might ask it is this, how big is your circle? How big is your circle? How big is your prayer circle? Do you have a little prayer circle? Or a large prayer circle. What do I mean by that? Your circle is the people and the peoples, the folks that you, that you give yourself to prayer for. Most of us have a little tiny circle. We pray for our lives, our family, our immediate, uh, our children, spouse, parents, whatever, just our immediate household, and maybe a few other things. That's about it. Our circles are very small. The Barna study I referenced earlier also asked a question about what people pray for, and the largest content block, over 60%, said prayers about the needs of my family, period. We pray by ourselves, we pray for ourselves, and that's our teeny tiny little prayer circles. But God's invitation for us is to have a bigger circle, to have a global circle. 
to pray beyond our little lives. It's to pray in magnitude with the reach of the gospel. I believe that there's a correlation with the size of our circle, our prayer circle, and our bigness, our view of the bigness of the gospel itself. The, the, the smaller our circle, the smaller that we believe God's grace is for, and, and the smaller that we believe God's grace should be extended to. God's grace, if our circle is small, only goes to those who we think deserve it and should get in on it. If you have a little circle of people you pray for, you'll have a little circle of people you believe God should be gracious to. But if you have a big circle, a global circle even, then you'll have a global view of God's grace. We're called to pray for all people. It must be a part of who we are, to pray, to seek the Lord. And if we neglect or forsake prayer, we're not following, we're being disobedient. We're not walking in the way that God has called us as a church to be. When we gather, we pray. So just verse 1 tells us right there, we must pray and we must pray for all people. You know the song, Jesus loves the little children of the world. All the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. If we're only focusing on one demographic, one people type, one race, one language, small circles, small gospel. But Christ invites us to pray for all peoples. He calls us to it. That's what the church should do. So we pray for all peoples. Paul drills in a little bit deeper here, and he gives us another thing to pray about, another group of people to pray for, and that is to pray for government leaders. Now, this is going to get a little sticky for just a moment here. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. And we can just stop there and go categorically, I know government leaders fall in that. But Paul gets specific, verse 2, for kings and for all who are in high positions so that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he's saying, pray for your governor, pray for your president, pray for the leaders of the lands. The term here, kings, refers to the Roman emperors and, and the high positions of the, the governors and civic leaders. In, in Timothy's day, you might think, well, who, you know, that's not really that radical to pray for the leaders. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel too insane to pray for the president or the governor. And so, I mean, can it really be that crazy that Paul would tell Timothy that? Well, I just want to inform you on who he's talking about here. Like, Paul doesn't attach the name. But if you've ever heard of a guy named Nero, emperor of Rome, that's the guy he's talking about right here. And Nero wasn't the best of, of leaders, by the way. He was a despotic, paranoid, totalitarian leader. He, he initiated the first systematic state-sponsored persecution of Christians. It's attributed to him that he started a fire in the city of Rome and then blamed the Christians on it. Like, this guy is not pro-Jesus. He is not pro-the church at all. And Paul is telling Timothy in the Ephesian church, he's telling us today, the Spirit is speaking to us right now and saying, pray for those leaders that are after you. Pray for the leaders that you would feel are persecuting you. Pray for, this is the emperor, by the way, Nero, that oversaw the execution of Paul himself. Pray for the guy that's going to murder you. That's radical. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. And, and when I think about leaders and people that I do agree with and don't agree with, it gets hard for me to pray for the people I don't agree with. It gets difficult for me to say, okay, I'm going to give time and energy to pray for their well-being, for their success, for their flourishing. And yet that's entirely the way of Jesus. That's what Jesus calls us to. Think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You have heard it said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
Oh, we would all agree with that. Yes, that's the, that's the cultural norm. That's how we should go about life. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And Jesus says, but I say to you with higher authority, King of kings and Lord of lords, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for the leaders that take away the freedoms that you love. Pray for the leaders that seem to go against your values and morals. Pray for the leaders that make it harder to be a Christian in our day and our time. And here's why. A couple of reasons Paul says at the end of verse 2, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he's saying pray for these leaders, pray for the emperor, pray for the king and these governors so that peace and tranquility would be in the land so that the church can continue to meet and worship and witness and work for the Lord without being disturbed or upset. Where there's relative peace in the land, the church can flourish and, and meet and advance the gospel in that way. Paul here isn't saying pray that you have a Christian nation, pray that there would be peace so that you can pursue the American dream. He's saying pray positively for these leaders so that the church can be what the church is without being disturbed with extra things from outside, that we would be governed by God's grace and wisdom because those in authority are providing an environment where the gospel can be freely shared. That's why we keep praying for our leaders. But secondly, we pray for government leaders because it's God's heart that we do so. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. He says, this is good. This praying for kings and all in high positions, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So right then and there, we just get the command. Like, this pleases God when you pray for kings. It, it pleases God when you pray for the president or the governor or the civic leaders. His heart is in that. But furthermore so, it's in alignment with his heart of mercy and grace towards them. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God, God's mercy, the God who has rescued us from our sins and rebellion wants his people to pray for the rescue and the redemption of all people, even the kings and the authorities who are persecuting the people of God. It's, it's like God to care for all people. His heart is reflected in our prayers. Furthermore, God's heart isn't aimed at destruction. His heart is aimed at mercy and grace. He desires even kings and presidents and tyrants and despots to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. We should pray for all people because God desires that all people get in on the grace that he pours out. The Holy Spirit here is calling us to pray positively for our government leaders. Now, let me be very clear here. He's not saying pray for the government leaders that you voted for or the ones that you like or affirm your positions. Pray for the government leaders, the kings, and those who are in high positions. We pray for the president. We pray for the governor. We're called to do this regularly and frequently. Why? Let's step one, back, back one verse. Because it pleases God. What more reason do we need? And you might say, well, I don't know how to pray for them. I just, I just want to fume against them. I just want to rage. How do, I, how do I pray for them? In your bulletin this morning, we included a card. I think it's here. Mine has escaped me. <laughs> There's a little white card with a prayer on it this morning. It's uh, a prayer. It's words supplied to help you pray for these leaders. It comes from the Book of Common Prayer, and it's supplied as a prayer for our national leaders. 
In fact, I want to just pause my preaching at this moment and invite us as a church family to pray for our president, for our governor, with, pray this prayer right now together as a church family with sincerity and with, with trueness of heart. So join me in this, in this prayer. O Lord, our governor, whose glory fills all the world, we commend this nation to your merciful care that we may be guided by your providence and dwell secure in your peace. Grant to the president of this nation, Joseph Biden, the governor of this state, Gretchen Whitmer, and to all in authority, wisdom and strength to know how and to do your will. Fill them with the love of truth and righteousness and make them continually mindful of their calling to serve this people in reverent obedience to you. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Now, we put this prayer on a card for you to keep, to put in your wallet, to put in your Bible, to have on hand, to help you have words to pray for them. It's good and right. It pleases God. And this prayer will give you a form and a pattern. It'll give you words that are true and biblical to help pray for the leaders of our nation. So we're called to pray for all people. We're called to pray for our government leaders. And finally, we're called to pray that the gospel advances. Now, this is the big focus of Paul's urging to prayer. He's saying, I want you to pray so that the gospel moves forward. I want you to pray and seek me so that that God's grace abounds and it goes out to many. Paul's just said, God's heart. What is God's heart here, okay? God's heart, his desire is that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That's his aim. That's his inclination. Mercy and grace and abundant goodness would flow to all peoples, to all nations. That's an expansive, universal, all-encompassing, good news message of love. And as I like to say often, anybody can get in on this. There's no exclusions to this. God's grace is for every single human being on the planet. But to get in on that grace, you've got to go through the one door. Paul states, heaven is open to everybody, but there's only one way in. That's what he says in verse 5. He says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now here again, Paul illuminates and brings up the gospel for us. He wants us to be a gospel-centered, praying people. And, And what is the gospel? That there is one God. One Lord, one Savior, one ruler over all things. And we are not him, by the way. There is one God. And then there is one mediator. The mediator is the one who stands in between two parties. This idea, it's it's one whom both sides can trust, a neutral negotiator who represents both parties and works in the best interest of both sides. There is this mediator between God and men. That is the man, the human being, Christ Jesus. How did Christ Jesus navigate and bring mediation between God and men? He gave himself as a ransom for all. Here's, here's Christ, the mediator who is, represents God because he himself is God. And he represents humanity because he has become fully and truly human, taking our flesh and blood. And so he stands for both parties and he acts to satisfy the needs of both parties. Where God has been offended... And wronged and rebelled against, his justice needs vindication. And so Christ came, and he took the penalty of our sin. 
He, he satisfied the wrath of God on the cross for us. And where you and I need salvation and rescue from the wrath of God, Jesus Christ stands in our place. He, he stood for us. And he died on our behalf. His blood applied for those who believe and trust in him. So Jesus himself gave himself as a ransom for all. The idea of ransom is one to uh, payment given to free a slave. We're under slavery to sin. We're in bondage to the devil, to our wickedness, to the world. Jesus came and died to liberate us and to free us from the tyranny of sin and wickedness and to bring us home as children of God. That's the testimony. That's the good news that Paul was appointed as an apostle and a teacher. That's his mission, to proclaim that gospel. And the good news is anybody can get in on that. And if you haven't gotten in on that today, do so. Turn and trust Christ. But the only way you get in on God's grace is through Christ Jesus. And that's what we pray about. The gospel, praying for the gospel advance is how the gospel spreads. We pray for all people and that all people would receive Christ. All people would come to the knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. So that the grace of God, so that God's desire that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth is fulfilled. We're praying that people hear the gospel message, that they believe and receive the gospel message and so are saved. We pray for all people. That the gospel would advance. That's a theme of Paul's letters. He says often, pray for us. Pray that the gospel may advance. 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Or in Colossians 4, 3, he says, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Or Ephesians 6, he says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. We're called to pray for the the mission of God, that people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people would hear the good news of Jesus, that they would respond in faith and believe Jesus and be saved. We pray for the church, for missionaries, for pastors, for those sharing and showing the love of God by in their work in all the world. One resource I would encourage you to is the website Operation World, operationworld.com. There you can sign up for a daily email that introduces you to a people group around the world and gives you some information about the state of the church in that area and the gospel and some prayer points, how you can pray for them. It's a simple way to hit your day with prayer for the advance of the gospel all over the world. And can I ask you as a church family, I'll speak to just our members and regular attenders, can I ask you to take some time on Saturday evenings and pray for our church at Woodside Plymouth? Would you pray for me on Saturday evenings as I get ready and kind of finish up my uh, notes and thoughts and get my heart ready to preach on Sunday mornings? Would you pray for me that the Lord would, would advance the gospel among us? I feel what Paul says, we desperately need your prayers. So what are we to do as a church? What do we do? When the church gathers, we pray. That's the calling there. We pray for all people. We pray for our government leaders. We pray for the advance of the gospel. And I think it's fitting that we have a week of prayer and fasting ahead of us to take the application step and to say, okay, let's make prayer a more specific part of our lives. Let's, let's get together and pray. So over the next week, you'll see on our social media accounts, Facebook and Instagram, a prayer prompt giving you specific and strategic ways to pray through the Lord's Prayer this week. On Wednesday at noon, the staff will be gathering for prayer, and if you'd like to come and join us to pray with us, we'll be here. The doors will be open. We'd love to have you. 
As you gather with your life groups this week, your life groups are gathering to pray. That's going to be the specific call and appointment for, for this week. And then Friday night, we'd invite you to come to Troy again and pray with the larger body at Woodside Bible Church. Will you come and pray? Let's, let's be what God has envisioned the church to be, a church that is seeking the power and the grace and the heart of God for all people through prayer. Let's not neglect what he's called us to be. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.